Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. And we know that vulnerable groups in the community are of higher risk from COVID-19 and as such, attention is now turning to those kept in immigration detention centres where physical distancing is near impossible, yet those being detained are, are likely to be of heightened risk to the virus. Last week, on behalf of a person in immigration detention, the Human Rights Law Centre filed a legal challenge in the High Court. To speak more about this, um, David Mann is on the blower. He's um, Exec Director at Refugee Legal and a very regular voice on 3RRR, and it's really great to have you with us again, David. Yeah, well, um, at a distance, um, it's um, great to be back um, chatting again. Yeah, we always prefer to have you in the studio, but um, next time, hopefully, that can be be a reality. Yeah, well, I reckon when I'm in the studio, so I think we probably still practice social distancing to some degree. We do. For, yeah, know, I, I definitely keep you at a distance, David. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed that. <laughs> um, no, we, we, we're all very, very compliant, even in non-pandemic times. So, yeah. That, that's right. We, we made it cool first. Um, yeah. Uh, so, I wonder if we can start with this case that's been um, filed in the High Court brought by Human Rights Law Centre. What can you tell us about that and, and the specifics around that particular case? Yeah, well, look, it, it actually um, was brought um, in, in relation to the, the plight of someone, a man that was brought back from... who was uh, held for a number of years on Manus Island and um, was uh, brought back to Australia under the Medivac um, provisions, is my understanding. It's, um, it's not our case, actually. I should just make that clear. Yeah. Although um, we've been working... A small amount of us have been... Groups have been working together very closely and some... Um, very well aware of the, the issues and strategy and we can come to some of the work we're doing later. But I think that the, the essence of it is that there's a man who uh, has been, is being held um, in detention who was brought back uh, for medical treatment that he couldn't get in PNG. And um, he has a number of serious underlying health conditions, um, including uh, asthma, uh, he's got a heart condition and diabetes. And the essence of the, the, the case is that, um, that he, being held in detention... Um, puts him at, um, at very serious risk um, in relation to contraction, potential contraction of COVID-19. So I think that really what the heart of this case is doing is saying that the government has a duty um, of care to this man and to others in a similar situation, but this case really is about this man um, that they're bringing. Uh, and it's failing to, to meet that duty because it's imposing conditions on him which um, create... Um, a serious risk uh, in relation to uh, COVID-19. And I think that, uh, that the backdrop to this really is that the, all the evidence is from experts um, is that um, holding people in, in immigration detention in these conditions um, does significantly heighten the risk of them contracting the virus. And there are quite a number of people held in detention at the moment um, who have... Um, yeah, acute health conditions, which are, are, are basically the kind of conditions which make them at even greater risk if they were to contract the virus of um, very um, serious illness, if not fatality. And as you say, this case is particularly about one individual. But if we do speak more broadly, I mean, around the world, yeah. we're hearing people uh, being released from different forms of detention uh, because of of the 
difficulty with phys- physical distancing, so those that can be released are being released. What is happening with regards to immigration detention in Australia? And uh, with asking that, I'm not talking about those in in community in the community, but those within the the, the onshore detention centres that are scattered around the country. Well, the main thing that's happening is um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, effectively a, re- a refusal um, by the government to take serious steps to find alternative and safer places uh, for people to be accommodated, um, given the risks. I mean, that's the main thing. Um, there have been strenuous attempts to urge the government um, from a range of courts, not just from human rights lawyers like us and others, but, but also from our medical experts, etc., uh, to urge the government to uh, to take uh, to take you know, immediate action to ensure that people can be held in, in safer accommodation or that they can be released into the community into safer places. And what's happening is um, a you know there has been no systematic um, action taken by the government to do so. So basically, what we have is around 1,400 people, men, women, and men, who remain locked up in immigration detention across the country. Um, and they're being held in, um, you know, in crowded and cramped conditions. Um, you know, crowded food halls. They're, they're sharing bathrooms, sleeping in rooms with up to six people. Um, the basic point is, it is literally um, impossible for many of these people to, uh, in, in terms of these conditions, they simply can't comply with basic standards uh, or, or for social distancing or self-isolation. And um, yeah, they're cramped, they're crowded, unsafe conditions, and uh, the government um, has um, thus far um, refused to look at um, you know, ready alternatives. And um, and so that's why um, uh, there's been the need to resort to this legal action. Um, and uh, and it, as you refer to, you know, Kelly, to situations across the world, Australia is one of the countries where there has been this fierce resistance to taking action um, which would ensure that people are in a safer situation. And we've heard about Australians, that's Australian citizens being, you know, sort of um, kept in quarantine in hotels and the like as they've returned from overseas in recent times. But asylum seekers who sort of had been detained in offshore um, Australian facilities have been detained in in hotels for some time. And there's been protests around, um, you know, the detainment of particular asylum seekers in a hotel in Preston. I mean, what's the status of of that and, and how are hotels being used in this way, and and for how long would asylum seekers expect to be detained in these places? Yeah, well, uh, this can this um, actually this started to um, th- th- this situation actually predates the pandemic, mm. and um, it's a quite an extraordinary situation where uh, in the suburbs of Melbourne, I mean, just up the road, there are there are people that have been brought back for you know brought back. Let's remember this too under the Medivac provisions. Um, brought back for urgent medical treatment that they couldn't get on Nauru or in, or in, in PNG. And then, um, it, with very acute conditions, I think this is a really important part of it, that um, you know, it's not just locking people up, but locking people up that were brought back um, with very serious mental health issues, very serious physical conditions um, that required urgent and expert treatment that they weren't getting. And uh, the government, for many of these people, has then locked them up um, in a form of in a form of immigration detention, where they um, are held, uh, and, uh, and this includes in hotels. So just up the road, in, you know, up the road in the suburbs of Melbourne, people are being locked up in hotels in prison. You know, sort of effectively 
you know, for want of a better word, imprisoned in hotels, you know, imprisoned in the sense of, you know, they have been deprived of their liberty uh, in cramped conditions in hotels. And so that they are, um, you know, uh, again, um, people who are at really serious risk um, and the government has a clear-cut duty to protect them um, from, you know, potentially fatal infection and yet there they are, locked up in these extremely unsafe conditions. Um, so... Um, you know, which are tantamount effectively you know, to being locked up in a detention centre in, in the sense of the deprivation of liberty in cramped conditions, um, which places them at greater risk. And I, I, I know that there has been some measures taken to try and make the immigration detention centres safer with regards to, especially with also staff going in and out of those centres. But to date, um, is, is the argument that the measures such as, you know, more hand sanitizer and different kinds of shifts and so forth are not adequate for the risk that, that uh, those in immigration detention are, are facing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the, the, effectively, there are the, the conditions in detention where... Well, the first thing is actually that you have detention staff coming in and out of the detention centre daily. So that's the first issue. Um, and so the ability to, if you like, control or to really really to impose and exercise the same measures to mitigate the risk um, uh, can't be done by those detained because there are staff coming and going. Um, that's the first issue, and that obviously creates a risk itself, according to experts, um, of, the, of, the, of the, the virus potentially getting into the detention centre. But then, uh, you know, effectively people are living in these cramped and crowded conditions where they're sharing dorm rooms with others, you know, up to six people, um, and, uh, and also sharing amenities, um, you know, where they eat, these in common areas, um, and uh, you know, and showers, etc. But the basic point is, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like a little bit akin to a sort of a, a land-based ruby princess at the moment. Right? It's 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 a, it's a situation where people are being held and they're trapped in a situation where they can't take the usual measures that uh, that the community is expected to take and is largely taking um, of you know the distancing and the isolation. They just can't do it. It's, 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 it's literally impossible for but most people to do so. And to yeah. date, though, um, has, has there been any cases of, of um, coronavirus entering any of these centres um, or, or not? It doesn't appear to be so far. Um, and, um, no, it doesn't appear to be. But I guess the, the point of, of it is, is that the risk remains. And, um, and I think the other, the other thing that medical experts have been have been saying is that if the virus, so that there is a risk of the virus, a genuine risk of the virus getting into a detention centre, and then if it does, the risk of spread is significant. Um, and, um, and, and so that's, that's the concern again. You know, there are alternatives to, to this. Um, we are a country um, that could take measures like in other countries. Uh, we, we could uh, be taking measures to find alternatives. Um, I mean, countries such as Great Britain, Belgium, Spain um, have looked at alternatives, as have many other countries, uh, to find safer accommodation for people, and yet it hasn't happened. And that's that's the concern. David Mann is... Being... 
So, sorry to jump in, David. Um, David Mann yeah. is, is our guest. Just to remind listeners, Executive Director of, of Refugee Legal, talking all about um, the plight of asylum seekers in the time of COVID-19 and a particular case that's been being brought um, to the High Court filed by the Human Rights Law Centre. And I guess, I mean, we don't want to, uh, you know, hypothesise too much on what might happen um, in the aftermath of this case, but would you imagine that there sort of could be more far-reaching consequences for the broader um, you know, uh, immigration system or, or the um, detention system in Australia through a case such as this? Because it feels like it's it's quite a specific case in terms of, um, you know, physical distancing not being uh, facilitated in, in detention facilities during the time of COVID-19. And, and I mean, hopefully we'll be emerging from yeah. this at least, you know, months down the track. Yeah, well, look, I think the first point is that the case is very much about the the, 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 it's very much about the COVID-19 situation. So the risk, rather than being a, a sort of more broad challenge mm. to the mandatory indefinite detention of a person, um, in this case, a man that they've brought the action for. And um, a number of us, as I say, a number of legal organisations have been working um, on um, have clients. We have many people um, in detention at the moment that we're assisting to um, who are incredibly fearful and petrified because of this situation. And um, some of them, you know, also have conditions, health conditions, which put them at, at high risk if they are very serious and higher risk if they were to contract the virus. I guess with all of these situations, the heart of the case at the moment, the heart of the, of, of the issue is, and it is a last resort, by the way, um, there are, you know, we, we have, a number of us have urged the government, as of medical experts, to take alternative action. It is a last resort, but it's very much focused on this, this litigation on the, the sort of, if you like, the apprehended breach of the duty of care to someone. So in, in putting them in this situation, um, creating you know, that there is an apprehended risk um, of the, the, or there's an apprehended um, breach of the duty of care to someone to ensure that they are in, in a safe environment. Um, and that's the heart of the case. It's all based really on um, the risk posed by COVID-19. Um, could it have broader implications just in that context, um, this case or others that um, um, have or might be brought? Um, and uh, as you say, as I always say, guys, when we've talked about this, I, um, uh, you know, I, I uh, never speculate on future action. Um, um, but uh, where we are contacted or are already acting for people who are at serious risk and who have rights, um, you can never discount the possibility of action being taken, of course. And... Um, I should say, with this and any other cases, uh, that uh, you know, we have to wait and see what the what the view of the court is. I think that's the, that what the attitude of the court is um, to this. I don't want to preempt anything mm. at all. Um, I think we just need to wait and see. Um, but I think that the, what remains um, is that the government actually had the opportunity in years still to act to do something different. Um, and um, if, you know, court cases, the conversation needs to be had in court at the end of the day, it will be um, for many people, I guess. But um, there is an opportunity still to take some alternative measures, um, which which would enable people um, to, you know, like everyone else, they'd, you know, that would enable them to, to, to seek better protection than they've got now, you know, the same protection that everyone deserves. Yeah, and, and just very briefly, David, we're almost out of time, but, I mean, how has this situation impacted on the nature of the work you do at Refugee Legal? Oh, hugely, um, hugely. I mean, what, i just say this, that, you know, that um, the people that we assist in, the many thousands each year, um, as you know, um, 
are already extremely vulnerable, and this places them at even greater risk. Um, not not just those in detention, and that's a very acute form of vulnerability and risk, um, but so many people also in the community who are already vulnerable. And you know, some of those people don't even have access to Medicare, and the government still is refusing to grant universal Medicare to people in the community. Um, there are many people who uh, are on temporary visas, including temporary protection visas, who have lost their jobs um, uh, during the pandemic. Um, you know, there are and uh, are facing the prospect potentially of, of destitution if, if something is not done to ensure that the safety nets that are being provided to others across Australia are provided to them and so many, and, you know, a huge amount of temporary visa um, holders that, that we assist, um, not just in the asylum area, but in the general immigration area who are vulnerable. So I think that the, the real concern here is, that I, if I could say this, is that um, we, we um, have, a, have had a paradigm shift globally in the way that we live and work. Um, and governments across the globe, including here, state and federal, have responded accordingly um, by measures which have um, corresponded with the paradigm shift have been extraordinary measures, such as the stimulus package. I have to say that one of the rare exceptions in our experience so far is in the immigration area. When it comes to you know, asylum seekers, refugees and vulnerable migrants, there has been a completely exceptional um, position taken, which has not been a paradigm shift, but rather um, very ad hoc piecemeal measures and woefully inadequate so far to ensure that, you know, that, that, you know, to make good, if you like, the thing that we keep hearing, and that is we're all in this together. Well, at the moment, frankly, we're not, in, we're not all in this together if you look at the response uh, to asylum seekers and vulnerable migrants. And uh, uh, because uh, the, the same measures and safety nets and supports um, have not been um, systematically applied at all, and it's a major issue because it not only then places those people at risk, but um, you know, obviously have consequences for all of us if people are not, are not properly supported. So there's much work to be done. Well, the stakes are high and getting higher and somehow I've ended up in, with a jingle in my head at the end of this conversation about <laughs> all being in this together, David. It's sort of kind of sitting awkwardly there. Um, thank you so much uh, for being on Triple R again and, yeah, looking forward to speaking with you again in the very near future. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot to both of you and um, good luck with it all. Cheers. Thanks, David. Uh, David Mann, thanks. Exec Director over at Refugee Legal... You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And as Indonesia faces the worst economic conditions since the Asian financial crisis of the late 1990s, Australia is being called on to extend a lifeline to help buffer the Indonesian economy as it tries to um, minimise the effects of the coronavirus. Adam Triggs, who is Director of Research at the Asian Bureau of Economic Research at ANU, believes, in fact, that the Australian government has a cost-free option available, which it can use to help prevent Indonesia from defaulting, defaulting on its loans. He's written about it in Inside Story, and it's great to have you on Triple R, Adam. And um, what an idea that we can extend support to Indonesia right now at little or no cost to ourselves um, as a country uh, and that we might be able to, to use it. Maybe you can let us know what that option is that we're looking at. Yeah, sure. So, 
I mean, Indonesia, as you say, is facing its biggest challenges since the Asian financial crisis. Investors are withdrawing money out of Indonesia at the fastest rate that they've ever seen. Their exchange rate is dropping considerably. Uh, and what this means for them is it's a little bit like having your mortgage or your credit card uh, denominated in US dollars. Uh, if you were in that situation, you'd be pretty stressed at the moment because the US dollar is going up, which means that the amount of debt that you owe is going up as well. Uh, and that's the situation that Indonesia and a whole bunch of countries around the world are currently facing. What we can do in Australia uh, is to help them out through what we've got is called a bilateral currency swap line, which is a bit of a mouthful, but the idea is that our central bank, uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia, uh, has an agreement with the central bank in Indonesia where Indonesia can swap their currency for our currency uh, and they can use that uh, in a crisis situation. They're able to use that to pay their foreign debt. Because the issue is they look, lack that foreign exchange that they need. They normally get it from tourists. They normally get it from exports. But all of those things have ground to a halt. Uh, so we'd be able to help them uh, by providing them with that currency. And then once they've stabilized the situation, uh, they can swap that back later on. But the issue that we have at the moment is that this swap line is only available, you know, sorry, is not available during a crisis. That's the policy of the Reserve Bank. Uh, and it's also too small. Uh, so here we have a situation where we could make it available to Indonesia, help them in their time of need. We could make it bigger, uh, and we'd save one of our largest trading partners. And given that they probably wouldn't even need to use it because it would send a positive signal to the markets, uh, the result is that it's almost costless. So it's a really uh, costless way to, to boost the relationship and, and to help stabilize the region. And so you mentioned that the bilateral currency swap line is not currently able to be used in a crisis, but is it something that is readily um, sort of drawn upon or, or utilised? No, not normally. So the idea is, well, the, the argument from the Reserve Bank is that it's available if a business in Australia or a business in Indonesia uh, needs access to each other's currencies, uh, but for some reason they can't do that and it's not related to a crisis. Uh, so they're not normally they're normally used for things like trade finance, uh, and they're only used to a small extent. Uh, but in this instance, uh, these things can be made available during a crisis, and then that would give them the foreign exchange that they need uh, to repay their debt. So the real concern here is investors can sort of create a self-fulfilling prophecy where they get worried that a country is going to default. So they pull all their money out, uh, that kills the exchange rate, creates a financial crisis, and then they default. So they actually create their own sort of crisis in that sense. Uh, and these sort of swap lines, by giving them access to these foreign currencies, you can stop that in its tracks. So it's, it's very effective in that sense. Yes, it sounds like a bit like a run on the banks. But I, I wonder what the appetite is like. I think your article's been up for over a week now. Um, is there appetite within the Australian government to have a look at this, Adam? Well, I think, I mean, it's quite fair. I think that the Australian government, it's really focused domestically at the moment. Uh, certainly when you listen to Scott Morrison, you listen to Josh Frydenberg, uh, they're not really talking about these international issues. But the problem is that, you know, while we've all been focused on ourselves and our, our own communities and our own countries, uh, we've already seen debt defaults in Argentina, in Venezuela, Zambia, Ecuador, uh, Turkey and South Africa look like they're pretty soon uh, close to collapsing. 
Uh, more than 100 countries have gone to the International Monetary Fund for assistance. Uh, and in Asia, it's Indonesia, it's Thailand, it's Malaysia uh, that are looking concerning. And, and some of our smaller neighbours like Fiji uh, in particular are struggling as well. So I think at the moment, governments around the world are focused domestically. But you know, while we've uh, had our back turned, I think we've got uh, a very serious problem here, these rolling financial crises. Uh, which are going to create uh, substantial, not just economic problems, but obviously huge social and political problems if, if we see uh, these these countries go down. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point because in one respect, I kind of read your article article and thought, um, you know, Australia as, as a good neighbour should uh, lend a helping hand here. But it, it sounds like there's real, uh, you know, very real economic reasons for assisting Indonesia and, and other trading partners in these times to the extent that we can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, Indonesia is a substantial buyer of Australian agriculture, for example. So there is a huge uh, and very uh, growing relationship between our two countries. Uh, Indonesia, if it continues its uh, the growth it's been having lately, uh, it'll it's on track to be the fourth largest economy in the world by 2050. Uh, most of trade and investment is all about location. Uh, how close you are to countries. And this is why Brexit is such a, a terrible idea, but that's another topic. Um, but for Australia, being so close to Indonesia, you know, we can capitalise on that. And that's going to be very, very important for our economic future as well. So uh, not only is there serious economic benefits in making sure that Indonesia continues to do as well as it's been doing, uh, but also in terms of security and in terms of politics. You know, we have a huge stake in making sure that Indonesia's democracy keeps going well. Uh, if they do a big lurch to the far right, well, that would be bad for us. It would be bad for security in the region and the, all the other ways that we cooperate with, with Asian countries. And so you've pointed out that there is this swap line that could be used as a bit of a circuit breaker right now for Indonesia's economy. And uh, you also mentioned that, that Fiji is another country that's... Um, potentially facing economic issues. It, would this be a sort of a slippery slope for Australia or can do we have swap line agreements with many countries and we could use it for all? I mean, what's what's that sort of um, landscape like? Yeah, we do have, uh, we have a, a few swap lines. We don't have as many as, say, the United States or China. Uh, we've got them with Korea. I believe we've got one with Japan, with Indonesia. We do have one with China as well. Uh, so we do have a few of these. Uh, the issue for Indonesia in particular is that we already have the swap line in place. So that sort of institutional mechanism is already there. So it's not very difficult for us to just switch it so that we can make it a little bit bigger uh, and we can also make it available during a crisis. Uh, and historically, in terms of precedence, uh, Australia has always helped out our, our Asian neighbours. Uh, for example, during the Asian financial crisis, we provided assistance to the countries affected by that. Uh, we provided assistance uh, in 2013 with the so-called taper tantrum when the US stopped quantitative easing and it caused all these huge problems in developing countries. We provided assistance then as well. Uh, so we do have precedent in this area. Uh, the question for the time being is, is whether we'll intervene fast enough because uh, a lot of this is a bit of a false economy where we think that we might just leave it and hopefully save money or not have to intervene. But the longer you leave these things, the worse the crisis gets, and then ultimately the bigger the cost, and we do have to provide assistance anyway.
We're speaking with Adam Triggs, Director of Research at the Asian Bureau of Economic Research at ANU, all about the economic situation facing Indonesia as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic and ways, quite simple ways really, um, the way uh, you write about it, Adam, that Australia could um, lend a help, helping hand in that situation. And I guess um, turning to the, the political dynamics of this, I mean, is this the kind of thing that it would be expected or the onus would be on Australia to offer this to Indonesia? or would it be requested? How, how does that kind of dynamic work? Uh, well, I mean, I think that the best thing that we could do is to really make the offer ourselves rather than leaving it to Indonesia uh, to come to us, uh, partly because uh, that's, it's a very good list. If we're talking about boosting the relationship uh, and doing it in a very cost-free way, uh, well, this is the way to do it, is to, to be proactive and to go out first. Uh, but also if Indonesia is to come to us and it becomes... Uh, known that Indonesia is uh, talking to a lot of countries to get assistance. Well, that can uh, spook investors. That can make uh, markets a little bit more nervous that Indonesia is worried about these things. Uh, whereas if we were to be proactive on that, we could. Uh, they could simply announce that Australia has extended this and has made their swap line larger, and, and investors take a lot of confidence from that. So in reality, it would be better for us to go to them. Uh, whether Indonesia's already asked us, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the government would know that. But uh, I think the best thing to do is for us to be proactive on this. And I, I, I want to sort of speak a, a little bit more broadly about in Indonesia and mm. my understanding from your piece but also other reports about the activities, economic um, development activities of Indonesia over recent years is that this pandemic is kind of causing this uh, economic problem through largely no fault of its own, that there's been a lot of work done to grow the economy in Indonesia. And we're also seeing uh, uh, Jakarta's essentially, um, you know, lockdown um, with flights, sea travel, intercity passenger trains, all work barely functioning, I suppose. Um, and they're, they're doing their best to prevent people travelling back um, for celebrations around Ramadan back to... Uh, home villages and the like. So there's a lot happening there and there's a sense that it's no fault of its own that this has happened. Do you think that might bolster confidence within the Australian government to uh, make that offer that you're proposing they should? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think we're acutely aware that Indonesia has been undertaking massive reforms uh, for about 20 or 30 years. Uh, they've been much more effective at uh, undertaking difficult reforms in Australia, for example, and, and that's extremely impressive that they've been able to do that. Uh, as you say, uh, all of the evidence shows that this is not Indonesia's fault. Uh, we're talking here about a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. Uh, all of the sort of normal rules that apply are sort of thrown out in this sort of environment. Uh, the issue that developing countries have is they're in a bit of a catch-22 situation where they have to borrow internationally to finance programs that alleviate poverty. Uh, but when they borrow internationally, uh, that also exposes them to some financial risks. Now, I mean, these countries aren't idiots. They, they manage these financial risks. And Indonesia has been really effective at, at making sure it's got frameworks and policies in place so that it doesn't get in trouble from borrowing, so that it can borrow internationally while also helping to alleviate poverty at home. But when you're hit with this sort of shock, uh, it's just so unprecedented uh, that it's not reasonable to expect uh, for Indonesia or any developing country to be able to really withstand this sort of shock. Uh, the issue that they have is 
they normally get their foreign currencies, which they use to repay their debt, uh, from tourism and from trade and from oil and uh, for their oil exports and things like that. Uh, but this is scale of the shock, the idea that all of their tourism would stop, that the government would need to shut down entire industries, that global trade would grind to a halt, that the global oil price would be negative. Uh, you know, this is just unprecedented stuff. So it's really not something we can blame Indonesia for. Uh, and I think that would bolster uh, the sort of appetite in Australia to help them out. And there's been, I think, in, in some of the particularly early commentary around the coronavirus, a kind of uh, false dichotomy presented between um, the economic cost and human cost because there's a sort of direct relationship between the two. How do you see um, any assistance Australia could offer, um, you know, in line with what you've proposed in your article in mitigating some of those, you know, potentially really disastrous human costs that could result from um, the coronavirus in, in Indonesia, given, you know, particularly in cities like Jakarta, cramped living conditions and the strain on, um, you know, an already uh, compromised health system? Well, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, when we talk about the health costs and the human costs, uh, that come from COVID-19, uh, they're really no different uh, to the economic costs. We're fundamentally concerned about people's living standards and people's livelihoods. Uh, so the health and the economics, we need to keep think, think of these things in, in the same sort of mindset. Uh, in terms of what Australia can do, uh, the issue we have is we're so focused on stabilising our own healthcare system that it's difficult at this stage, I think, politically and maybe even from a health perspective, to really uh, go out and start providing a lot of assistance to other countries. But once we stabilise the situation here, uh, you would hope that that's what we would start to do and we would start to provide more assistance and more medical equipment uh, throughout the region. Uh, but the reason that I really start with the financial side is that it's something that we can do from here. It's something we can do very easily. Uh, and it's something that does uh, support uh, the living standards of people in Indonesia and helps stop things from spiralling out of control. So really the lowest hanging fruit at this moment is to do some of these financial things. Uh, and then hopefully once we do stabilise uh, our own uh, healthcare system, which it certainly seems to be the case, uh, we can start focusing on how to help these other countries, how to help Indonesia, how to help uh, our small Pacific countries like Fiji, uh, and then to do more in the region. Well, Adam, when um, things sound like no-brainers, it's uh, an argument well made. So um, thank you for your, your insights and also your article. And people can um, go and chase up more by uh, checking out the Inside Story website. And I'm sure we'll speak again. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Adam Triggs is Director of Research over at the Asian Bureau of Economic Research at the ANU. Triple. Over the weekend, uh, Josh Earl, comedian, former breakfaster, uh, Lime champion too, launched a series of live video stream comedy shows on his website called Don't You Know Who I Am? He's running another one this Saturday. And uh, before we introduce him, uh, we're going to play a bit of a snippet of, of what's in store. Uh, let's get into it. Our first game today is called Social Me, Me, Media. Well, I'll read out status updates by the four of you. If you think you know who wrote it, this could be... Twitter, it could be Instagram. Buzz in, your names are your buzzers. You get a point if you get it right, a point to the person who actually wrote the tweet if you're incorrect, so you can't buzz in for your own ones. Poker face is on. Here we go. Was once asked to just buy staples from the supermarket, so I bought a box of staples and apparently that made me an idiot. Would an idiot have bought staples even though there was no stapler? Yes. Oh, 
very well. That was Geraldine. Good. Yes, Geraldine. Um, Matt Stewart. You are correct. That's <laughs> another one of yours. How does he fit so many words in a tweet? This guy's a freak. (laughs) That was a true story. I genuinely bought a box of staples uh, when I was asked to just get staples, meaning milk and bread. Staples, Matt. My my partner, I, but I'm like <laughs> later on. Why would she have wanted to get so? We don't have a stapler. I don't think. It's autopiloted it. But now you don't have milk and bread either. Yeah, that's funny buggers. Um, Josh, well, hello. <laughs> hello, how are you? Uh, it's uh, so good. I'm so excited to be talking about a gig. Um, yeah, I, it's funny. I, I already got my ticket for next weekend because you oh, know great. what? I can tune in from home. I'm not going anywhere. Oh, it's so good. It's so nice. Everyone's been like on social media posting photos of them, like either like sitting on their couch with wine and cheese or in their bed watching it. It's, it's really fun. So, how did this all come about, Josh? I mean, is this kind of a natural extension of your podcast or? Yeah, kind of. I had all these live shows for the comedy festival, and then when that got cancelled, I uh, work with the people at Stupid Old Studios who have a performance, like a, not a performance space, but a uh, recording space. And we kind of thought, oh, how can we help out comics and other creatives who have, you know, got these shows ready to go, but just don't have the platform for them now? And so they were like, oh, talking about live streaming and. At the start, it was going to be people coming into the studio and doing it, and then with all the lockdown stuff, we thought that's not safe. So now all the guests are just streaming in from home, which is really nice as well. So I had had one on the weekend with uh, Anne Edmonds and uh, Greg Larson and uh, and Kate McLennan, and uh, it was so funny because uh, at one point, Edo had to turn a light on, and so she crawled on the floor and in her house, in her bedroom, and then her boyfriend came in and just had to use the toilet, had to go through the room, and then he just left. It was all the kind of stuff that in a live show you don't get, but when people are just filming from their house, they feel comfortable doing this stuff, but it was really fun. So That's mm. great. The material writes itself. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I don't even have to write it. It's brilliant. So practically how do you do it? I mean, because is it the sort of environment where only one person can speak at once? Some of these video conferencing things can kind of make that, challenging but how is that working with you know punchlines and the like yeah it's it's it is that challenge of just getting used to going okay someone's talking now but we can all see each other uh and the people who are super studios they kind of are light editing as we go which is really amazing and like they do such a good job and it actually looks really really good and it's one of those things where you just kind of I think you just adapt to how this new life is now. They're going, all right, well, there might be like a split-second delay, but as soon as you realise someone's talking, you can't, most people are pretty good at just being quiet and letting the people get their stuff out. Yeah, what's really kind of uh, innovative about this model um, to me, Josh, is is that it's sort of monetized that people can buy a ticket to watch the stream because there's been a whole bunch of um, you know bands and artists live streaming as part of things like the Isolate Festival, which has been a really awesome yep. initiative to you know allow us to still connect with artists in our own home and that kind of thing. But obviously, it's free, um, and when artists are missing out on you know potential income from playing live, um, that can't really replace that. And and I mean, this is a really important time for comedians. A comedy festival can be a big chunk of of their income. I mean, how can this sort of model work? going forward do you think is it something that's that's going to become more viable for comedians 
Yeah, the first at first we were only going to do two, and uh, we've extended it to four. Because what happened like with the comedy festival, a lot of people decided they bought tickets to the shows and said, "Oh no, you keep the money." And I felt really bad about that. I was like, "Oh no, that's that's your money. I'll provide some content." So I thought I'll do these two shows, and anyone who bought a ticket to the live shows had free access to these shows. And then more and more people were like, "Hey, great! I, I'm not in Melbourne, but I listen to the podcast. I'd love to." buy tickets as well, or other people who are like, I can't get into the city or the venue I was in wasn't accessible to them. And so this just opens it up for more and more people to have access without having to leave the house, which is really great. And so how it works is it uh, goes onto a YouTube channel, which is private, so you can't actually access it until you buy a ticket. And then the show's up for 24 hours, so even if you can't watch it, say, at 4.30 on Saturday when it's on, you've got 24 hours afterwards to actually you know, once the kids are asleep or whatever it is, you finish work, you can actually uh, still watch it. And so does it limit numbers, um, uh, Josh, like a venue would, or can you just go with as many people as, as buy a ticket? I just go with as many people as buy a ticket. Actually, been more people have been watching the podcast through this system than if I had it at my venue, which would have been capped at 150 people. Gee, and I mean, I suppose it's really good to see these sort of silver linings and I can't imagine you're going to swap um, the opportunity to be in front of like a live audience in future and do this instead. But are you sort of learning, I suppose, as you go about what what works in this different environment with regards to your um, comedy approach or, you know, approach to the way that you do comedy? Yeah, it's been really interesting because that thing of like just people playing within the space that they're filming in as well, which is been another element of the comedy. Like I mentioned how Edo kind of crawled on the floor and popped out a shot and Kate McLennan had a background where she had her body pillow that she used to uh, get cracking with her whole image on it. Just That was in the background. And so uh, and Greg Larson had a communist flag up in his thing. So it was, it's just that little bits like that, which are actually kind of fun. And then, um, yeah, it, it's been really kind of – and the other good thing about it is that because there's so many comics who are missing an income, I can pay the people. So the breakdown, I'm trying to do it really fairly and pay Supergirl Studios who are doing it their percentage and then the rest of the acts, we just put the money between the rest of us. Is, is this the kind of thing you could imagine doing again in sort of a, a post-COVID world? Yeah, I, I think I could. If I did it again, I'd probably have uh, – an audience as well, though, so you can buy tickets to see the show or and then we can just stream it online and people can buy tickets that way as well, which could be a really good avenue for people who either don't live in Melbourne or can't get in. So, yeah, I think it's it's kind of the silver lining that I've been looking at going, oh, that's actually really interesting. Yeah, because it's kind of interesting. I mean, there's there's a great sort of interplay between you and, and your guests and that's a benefit of doing a show with other people that you can kind of bounce off each other and that kind of thing. But often... At the comedy festival and, and, you know, any comedy show, one of the, the best things about it is the interaction between the audience and the way the audience responds to, um, you know, a particular joke or something like that. Yeah, and I, my show is lucky in that there's five of us there. Yeah. So if it's funny, there's still laughter there. I know some people have been doing live streams of their stand-up show, which is, I, I would find that very difficult in terms of going, oh, I'm going to say a joke now and there's no laughter do I wait for the laughter or do I just keep barreling on? So I find, yeah, it will be, you know, a lot of people are figuring out how it's best suits them. I, I was lucky in that my podcast was already established and the audience was there. So hopefully we can keep going. Hopefully it's not just we do this uh, these four weeks and then uh, that's it. But, yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. It's all Everyone's all up in the air not knowing what really is going to happen next. 
Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying there about, you know, uh, uh, not adding canned laughter, I suppose, and that's something that I noticed on, say, Sean McAuliffe with, with Mad as Hell, uh, people who watched that over the past few weeks would note that he didn't add canned laughter, yeah. which he could have, and that it really did change the show, and I, I kind of I really commend him for it. I mean, what was your thoughts on that? Have you have you seen it without the, without the laughter yeah. of the audience? I love it. What I'm really finding fascinating is all the American uh, talk show hosts doing their monologues to no laughter, and... <laughs> It really shows up. Like, Sean McCarthy is such a genius and all these writers are so great. And so the writing is really good. But without the laughter, you've got to make sure the writing's good. Otherwise, there are, it's so obvious. I watched uh, one of the early Seth Meyers. Like, I think Seth Meyers is great, especially his closer looks. But one of his monologues, you could see him getting embarrassed but he was saying it. I'm like, oh, what's going on? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, it's just being part of Zoom meetings and... and um you know, interacting with this era of, of video conferencing and stuff, it, it seems to have brought up some moments of hilarity itself. I mean, you mentioned Edo and um, and those sorts of things that are happening as part of your show. But as a comedian, I mean, are you finding things to riff off for these times that you could imagine building into future shows? Yeah, I've kind of, because I've been so focused on this and it's kind of been a nice relaxing of not having to think about stand-up for a while. I've mm. been doing stand-up for, since... 2004, and this is kind of like the first break I've had from it in that entire time. And so it has been a nice shift for my brain to go, oh, I don't have to look at everything as if it could be material. And it's probably been a really healthy thing for my brain. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I've just been, I'm a bit slow sometimes, um, Josh, and I, I'm sure that Dylan can say that. Like, it takes me a while for things to occur to me, but this idea that into the future, we could have live comedy um, and even stand-up, but then the option for expanding that audience with some sort of a video conferencing or live feed at the same time, which is also ticketed. I mean, yep. do you think that will change uh, the way, like the venues and, and the kind of capabilities that, that venues offer into the future and that sort of thing? Yeah, it could do. I mean, that's the thing. Hopefully the power gets back with the artists. I mean, there's some great venues. There's also some venues who are just, we are here to sell alcohol to people. We don't really care about the acts on. It's just a way to get people in the door. And so hopefully with this, the artists actually can have more of the power to get their, like all their audiences can just watch this one show and maybe it could be another way, if you're talking in terms of maybe, you know, travelling a lot and so environmental kind of stuff, you can do it this way. It can cut, And also it cuts down a lot of costs and travel and all that kind of stuff. And so if you've got a good setup and you can film it and it looks good and sounds good, you can kind of like, you know, already ahead of the curve for a lot of these performance spaces as well. And I know, I mean, here at Triple R, a lot of people are broadcasting from home and there's been a lot of knowledge sharing around particular tech setups and, you know, how we can continue to sort of keep doing our thing for as long as possible without disrupting shows. Has there been a lot of discussions within the comedy community about approaches to, um, you know, like finding some income in these times or how to kind of um, transition your show to, to do something online? Yeah, I mean, a lot of comics are... For years, it's the joke, everyone's got a podcast. And so there's been a lot of people with like who already have podcasts set up who are like, well, I'm actually really ahead of the ball here. And even going back to the American host, like some of them filming on their phone and looking terrible. But then you've got these YouTube stars who have this set up and are all set up and can still do their shows without having any real like impact. Like It doesn't even look any different. 
And it's kind of that thing of like saying some of these models, these old models are outdated and we should probably look at going into the future, what can we do and how can we all kind of make it more accessible for everyone to do something like this. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge jolt and huge opportunity amongst the carnage as well. Um, we're speaking with Josh Earl and about his live streaming series, which um, uh, started on the weekend and uh, another one this Saturday night uh, called Don't You Know Who I Am? And tickets are available at joshearl.com.au if you want to get your tickets and get along. And, uh, I mean, what's, what are the plans? You said that you've added another couple of dates as well, Josh. I mean, what's the plan yeah. this Saturday night and on? Onwards. So, oh, so this is the last one. So I did start three oh, weeks sorry, ago. So yeah, no, that's right. I added these last two because they were so uh, popular, and everyone was like, "Oh, keep doing them, keep doing them," because it's a lot of people saying it's just nice to have something in the calendar to go. Oh, I'm doing this this week. It's great. And so, yeah, this week it's it's gonna be fun. I've got Ross Noble on, which is gonna be lots of fun. And uh, I guess we're gonna just try and see. If it's financially viable to keep doing it, because it's a, it is a lot of work for the people here at Stupid Old Studios to, because uh, they've got to come in on their weekend and film it, and there's a mm. small crew of three people who, one's on the floor with me and two are upstairs in the, in the studio. So it's it, we're just trying to see if it's one there's a market for it, and two if the people who are working on it actually can keep doing it and stuff like that. So hopefully we can keep keep doing it, and it's yeah we'll try and do a model where it's like accessible and affordable for people who might be doing it tough as well. And what about the podcast? You're still doing that weekly? Yeah, the podcast is still weekly. So these are, it is the podcast, but they don't go in the normal podcast stream. So I thought, oh, it's a bit weird charging people money for something that they're going to get for free on Wednesday. And so, and seeing I've had all my gigs cancelled, I've had a bit of extra time, but I thought I was going to have extra time and then I didn't realise how much homeschooling was going to take <laughs> with a five-year-old and eight-year-old. That is the curveball uh, that no one saw coming, I think. No. So, yeah, but it is that thing. I, I do this extra show a week and, yeah, put it out there. And then I've also got a Patreon, which is, you know, people pay money to help support the podcast and they get a bonus one every month. And so, yeah, the minute I, I feel like I'm spending all my life just writing podcasts, which is it's fine. It's good. Keep yeah, me busy. I mean, you, you've set it into a really great groove with the podcast. It's um, you've got over 200 episodes. It's grown hugely. Yeah, I was gonna, I was actually gonna cancel it at 200. That, the 200 at the um, at the comedy festival was gonna be the big finale, and then wow. I was gonna go. I say cancel. I was gonna go monthly. So I'm just going weekly. I was gonna go once a month. But now I'm like, nah. This is it. It's amazing that like, because I, I also work at the state library. And that's closed down. And so I was like, that was my fallback job. That was my safety net that kept my mum and dad happy when they asked me how's, how's life going. <laughs> and so that's, that was the one that went first. And so I was like, oh, thank goodness for podcasting. Yeah, yeah. keep it going. I'm glad it's still a Josh L. Librarian. That's great. Yeah, <laughs> it takes me takes me back to when you were a regular voice on this program here on Three Triple R, Josh. Well, so good to speak with you, and um, all the best with the homeschooling. And uh, people can tune in uh, to the last planned um, uh, video streamed. Don't you know who I am? And um, yeah, watch this space for potentially more dates. Um, see how it goes. Thanks heaps. Thanks so much, guys. Cheers, uh, Josh Earl. And if you want to find tickets, joshearl.com.au. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.